0: Not all of you will know the name of Jim Stockdale, but some of you will, particularly those who are aficionados of military history. Uh, Jim Stockdale was a person who became famous because he was uh, shot down over the skies of North Vietnam during the Vietnam War. He was held prisoner under terrible conditions and was eventually freed. He survived and became an admiral. Um, Why he came to a lot of fame was not just because of people uh, writing military history, but because of a person named Jim Collins who wrote a book on leadership and how it is that leaders succeed in the midst of difficult circumstances. Um, Stockdale, he says, was tortured more than 20 times by his captors and never had much reason to believe he would survive the prison camp and someday get to see his wife again. And yet, as Stockdale told Collins, he never lost faith during his ordeal. Stockdale said, I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which, in retrospect, I would not trade. Then comes the paradox. While Stockdale had remarkable faith in the unknowable, he noted that it was always the most optimistic of his prison mates who failed to make it out of there alive. Stockdale says this, They were the ones who said, We're going to be out by Christmas. and Christmas would come, and Christmas would go. Then they'd say, We're going to be out by Easter, and Easter would come and Easter would go, and then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again, and they died of a broken heart. What the optimists failed to do was to confront the reality of their situation. They preferred the ostrich approach, sticking their heads in the sand and hoping for the difficulties to go away. That self-delusion might have made it easier on them in the short term, but when they were eventually forced to face reality, it had become too much, and they couldn't handle it. Stockdale approached adversity with a very different mindset. He accepted the reality of a situation. And so Collins summarized the Stockdale approach, which he called the Stockdale Paradox. Collins describes it as, you must retain faith that you will prevail in the end, regardless of the difficulties, and at the same time, you must confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. Good advice. I think all of us, as difficult as it is to hear, realize that blind optimism that's not based in reality ends up disappointing you. But at the same time, brutal reality with no optimism whatsoever is something that's too hard for us to face as well. As Stockdale notes, you need a hope grounded in reality, but you also need to be realizing that reality can be really, really difficult. I think that Stockdale gives us a profound reflection on what Advent is meant to be. It's meant to be a season that gives us profound hope that Christ's victory is won. It was won for us on the cross. He is enthroned in the heavens. He is our king. He will return to make all things right, but at the same time to recognize the brutal reality that this world is far from what it should be, and we often must face many, many small defeats in life while we still hold on to the hope of the final victory that is in Christ. I'd like to speak to you today about really three major points from our readings today, Jeremiah 33 and um, from luke chapter twenty one I'd like to speak to you about what I think Advent helps us do in recognizing excuse me, in recognizing the hope Israel had after disaster. Secondly, how we are to have hope in the midst challenge to have hope in the midst of our challenges here in the modern world, and thirdly, to give some advice about how we hold on to that hope when that victory that Christ promises seems very far off so let's look at the first point about where israel's hope is because after all, When we talk about Advent, we're really talking about two Advents. Advent comes from Adventus, which is Latin, which means coming. The first coming we celebrate at Christmas, and the second coming we look forward to at the end of the age. So we look forward to how Israel looked at the first Advent. It gives us a little bit of uh, insight into what our Advent season is meant to be about. Listen to what Jeremiah chapter 33 says about the first Advent, about how Israel was hoping for a Messiah, a descendant of David, to come to them. He says in verse 14, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called the Lord is our righteousness. And he goes on to say, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, make grain offerings, and to make sacrifices for all time. It's a powerful promise that David will always have an ancestor on the throne of Israel. Do you know why that promise is so powerful and at the same time so hard to accept? It's because Jeremiah is writing at a time where Jerusalem has just been completely flattened by the Babylonian army. It's a harrowing account if you read through Second Kings, which is sort of the story of Israel's later days in decline, in which many ways there are challenges and God rescues them. But Jeremiah, towards the end of Israel's kingship, starts calling out to them, saying like there's disaster on its way. They keep flirting with power politics, making alliances with Egypt and getting in the middle of the wars between Babylon and Egypt. They're oppressing the poor and the widows. They're turning to false idols. They're living for themselves and not preparing and not doing what God calls them to do. The priesthood is corrupt and people are taking money and bribes and they are worshiping idols. Jeremiah is often called the weeping prophet because nobody listens. He says, change your ways and they won't listen and they don't. If you want to read the most harrowing book of the Bible, read Lamentations in which Jeremiah is traditionally known as the author but after Israel has had Babylon come through, destroyed its temple, destroyed the city, killed its last ki- or last um, uh, of the of the heirs of the king, so that the last king uh, is uh, has no heirs. Israel's hopes are all gone because their temple is gone, the last of David's kings is gone, and yet Jeremiah writes here: Look, God's promise will come true. He will provide for you a king, and he will provide for you a priest, and they will never ever. Uh, 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 be taken from you. Here. So here's the great hope, but here's the challenge. One century goes by after Jeremiah says this, no king, no eternal priest. Another century comes by, no Davidic king, no eternal priest. In fact, Jeremiah is writing these hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, and Israel has been waiting century after century for the king David to come, and he never seems to do it until what we as Christians recognize as the first advent happened. That Jesus is born in the city of David, as an heir of David, and he comes and eventually is enthroned on high as the king of the new kingdom of God. He's also, as Hebrews has told us in the readings we've been having over the past weeks, he's our great high priest. Israel waits for centuries and centuries until the group who recognize Jesus as the Messiah finally has their hopes realized. And what does that mean for us? It means that as we approach the first Advent, the celebration of Christmas, when Jesus is born in the world, at Christmas time we'll talk about the Son of God being with us, we'll talk about the great reality that God became flesh and dwelt among us. What Advent prepares us to recognize is, is to step into Israel's shoes and say, after centuries of long waiting, God's promises were fulfilled. Advent is meant to remind us that in the midst of hardship, God can be trusted and when he makes a promise, he will fulfill it. When we approach Christmas, we recognize one of the first things that Advent teaches us is to say God is someone who promises us great things, but he can be relied on even when we find that it's dark around us. Here's the second thing, though. We look at at how Jeremiah speaks about how a God will fulfill this promise, and this is something great that will happen. But Jeremiah also recognizes it certainly doesn't look very hopeful at the time. If we're really honest, we need to recognize that that that's exactly how it is in our world in our modern Christian context. Because when we look around at this world and we say, like we did last week at Christ the King Sunday, Jesus is the king, he's brought in a new kingdom, it's hard not to notice when you step outside those doors and turn on your radio and listen to the news that it does not seem to be that there's a king in charge at all. I mean, after all, when we listen to the news, we recognize that the prince of peace may be enthroned in heaven above, but it does not seem like in his kingdom that there's an awful lot of peace. Jesus himself says some really harrowing words to his disciples just in the days before he is crucified. Listen to the things that he says to them and how they will be fearful just as we often are. There will be signs in the sun. This is Luke 21, verse 25. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth distress among nations confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what's coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. That kind of language is scary for us, and it reflects, frankly, the kind of anxieties people would have had in Jesus' day. When he talks about great things happening in the heavens, it was a common way that ancient people would speak about a change of an era from one old era, an old way of doing things, to a new way. Jesus sort of underlines this when he talks about all all the trees, and when they start sprouting leaves, you tell there's a new season. It's the same one when he talks about the signs in the heavens. When you think about the sun and the moon and the stars, ancient people could tell time by these things. It was before uh, pocket watches and things that could tell them what time was. These are the things you could count on. The sun came up every day, and the sun went down every day. The moon came up, and you could see by its light. Jesus, when he talks about the sun and the moon and the stars and changes in the heavens and signs, is saying... An era is coming to an end. When he talks about the Son of Man coming in the clouds, I think what he's talking about is the ascension, when the Son of Man will go and be uh, uh, enveloped in a cloud and sit at the right hand of the Father. What he's saying is that your old way in which you worship in Jerusalem with the temple will be taken from you because very soon in the Roman Empire there will be turmoil. And in fact, just a few years after Jesus' death and resurrection, we find that a civil war engulfs the Roman Empire And eventually when Vespasian becomes the emperor, he sends his son Titus to Jerusalem because they'd rebelled and he flattens the city, destroys the temple and Jews were scattered for 2,000 years since. Only in the 1940s was Israel reconstituted after years of them never having a homeland. Jesus says the old ways that you trust in are going to be gone. Your whole world will be shaken up and something new will happen. But look and your redemption is near. I think for many of us, when we look at the world today, we are challenged to say, how can we keep up hope when we see many things that we really love changing? How it is that the things that we really value seem to be slipping out of our hands very easily. You know, nowadays, of course, sometimes Christians make a big deal out of the happy holidays as opposed to Merry Christmas, and sometimes, of course, that's really silly. We're not persecuted like people are in Pakistan, like Asia BBE is, held for nine years on death row. But it does kind of grind my gears a little bit when a person uh, is selling Christmas trees and calls them holiday trees. That kind of bugs me. I like going to Swiss chalet and I think, why am I having a festive special? What's that festival you're not wanting to name? It's not a big deal, but what it is is a little bit of sadness to say our culture's changed. People no longer celebrate Christmas and attach to it the significance that people once did. Or I think of course even at the world and things that are more serious and say, What are we called to believe as Christians? Imperfectly though we do it, we recognize that we're children of God. We're made in God's image. Jesus tells us to love our neighbor and we have a duty to love those who are different than us. But only listen to the news and you realize that nations that have been steeped in Christian faith, imperfect though they are, are starting to shed that love your neighbor ideal and shed that idea that we're made in God's image. Just look to the south of us and how it is that far-right movements endorse violence and far-left movements endorse violence in ways we haven't seen for quite a while. You look at those things and you also compare it to the, the, the way that churches are struggling and how often I look around and think 30, 40 years ago, churches that were full are now closing and there is the end of an era. It's hard not to feel like you're shaken up, like you're frightened about the future. And Jesus' warning Jerusalem is, in fact, a warning that seems to come to us as well. We have to find ways of holding on to hope because, frankly, the reality around us is scary. Jesus challenges us to say, hold on to hope and believe in him that your redemption is drawing near. But Here's the great challenge, right? How do you do that when it seems like there's lots of small defeats around us? How do we hold on to the hope of ultimate victory? I think Jesus actually leaves us in the midst of these challenges. The last section he says in Luke 21 is a real challenge for us to hold on to hope and a way that we can do it day by day. This is what he says in verse 34 of Luke 21. Be on guard so your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life. And that day does not catch you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all who live on the face of the whole earth. Be alert at all times, praying you may have the strength to escape all these things will take place and to stand before the Son of Man. It's interesting that Jesus warns people when he says that there's troubles that will shake you up. You know what you need to avoid is drunkenness, dissipation, and the troubles of the world. It's an odd sort of combination, though, isn't it? When you think about drunkenness and dissipation, a person who drinks too much and spends all his days on video games, that's a little bit different than the person who's so overcome by the worries of the world that he's a workaholic and spends all his time at the office. What do these things have in common? You know what they have in common? It's not attentive to eternal transcendent things in the midst of the worries that you have in front of you. When a person spends time in drunkenness and dissipation, he's not attentive to the people around him. But when a person is a workaholic and spends all the time worried about the needs of the world, they're not very attentive to eternal things either. Jesus warns us. He says to pray in preparation because he wants us, I think, to be open to the daily reality of God coming to us day by day. We come to believe his eternal promises and we start seeing him fulfill the small promises he makes day by day of being with us. And in fact, he makes many promises that if we open our hearts and our minds, we will actually see him and acknowledge his presence. Some of the most powerful promises in scripture are ones we take for granted. God tells us that my word will not return to me empty, but do we come to church recognizing that even through the imperfect way that a preacher may preach, Even in the imperfect way that a person may read, God says that his word going out and touching our hearts has an incredible effect. Do we come preparing ourselves to say, God, I expect you to show up in your word? What does Jesus say when he says that we are to gather and to take this, his body in remembrance and take this cup, his blood in remembrance? He doesn't say how he's here, but he says, I make you a promise. These words have a promise attached that I will be present. Do we come to church asking that God prepare our hearts so that we see him present? Or when the psalmist tells us that God is enthroned upon the praises of his people, when we come, have we prepared ourselves to give ourselves over to our singing and to say, God, we know that you hear our prayers, you hear the cry of our hearts, and we know you will answer us? So often it is that we come to church unprepared and for that reason we find ourselves unmoved. It's hard to believe in the great promises of God we don't start leaning on the smaller promises that he makes day by day to say, "I am always coming to you every Sunday I come to you." Or think about the daily ways that we encounter God's beauty and greatness. You know how beautiful it is when the snow falls and you drive down Fallowfield and you turn to look north and you realize, "My gosh, this is gorgeous." There were times, even, frankly, when we have had uh, thunderstorms and hail and things where I look out my window and the sky is dark, and I'm amazed by the power of nature. And then I go back to my video games or something. Or you look at the way that sometimes even here at church, a little piper, one of our children here, and just the exuberance and excitement that she got when she found something in her boot and how excited she was at that. There's beauty shining through. Do we really take Jesus' words uh, really truthful to say we must become like these little children to enter the kingdom of God? We so easily go about our days not preparing ourselves to encounter God in our neighbor, not encountering God in nature, not encountering God in our scripture and prayer and study. We often do that because we have not prepared ourselves really believing that Christ's promises are true. You cannot believe, I think, the great promise of Christ's return to set all things right, to deliver us unless you've gotten to the habit of trusting in the everyday promises he makes that he will come to us. Here's my suggestion for us in Advent. To think of ways in which you, in practical ways, can prepare yourselves. Even if you just a few minutes on Sunday before you come to church and say, God, I know you will be here. Prepare my heart to receive you. If you spend a few minutes in the morning when you go out to work and say, I'm going to take a few minutes of silence while I finish my coffee and sit in an armchair in the living room and say, God, show me where you're present today. Or before you go to bed and you turn out the light just to spend two minutes thinking and reflecting, where have you been with us? Where have you been in my life? You begin to realize that through the grace and power of God's spirit, he can show you where he has been present. What's our challenge? To so turn to the many resources we have to start saying, God, prepare us not just to believe in your ultimate coming again, but help us to believe that you come to us day by day. And when we're gathered here and we see that you have come to us in word and sacrament. Our challenge this Advent is to say, are we truly prepared for Christ's coming? Because this coming of Christ is a wonderful thing. And day by day will help you suffer the defeats and challenges of everyday life, and give you the glimpse of final victory that can sustain the hope in the midst of true challenge and sorrow.